Ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to tonight's debate, Design in Nature. Um, I want to get cracking because there's a lot to cover. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I guess the obvious starting point with this debate would be Darwin, but actually um, I just want to draw your attention to, to within three years of the publication of The Origin of the Species, Karl Marx exuberantly wrote to a friend that um, the book dealt a death blow um, to, the teleo- to teleology and the natural sciences. Um, and um, no doubt that the idea that nature displays an inherent purpose and more generally the hand of a, of a wise designer, um, that, that, that idea was given a blow, but clearly not a terminal one. More recently, there has been a kind of revival in interest in the idea of design. Um, what we're not going to obsess about tonight um, is intelligent design, but obviously we will give it a certain amount of, of, uh, of consideration because of the political and media interest in that. Um, we will deal with a more broad argument that the world is so complex and suited to our survival that for some that we, it's impossible but to credit it to the work of a wise designer. But I want us to look at two more fundamental questions, not fundamentalist questions, but fundamental questions. First of all, the status of natural science in our understanding of the world. And secondly, the proper place for the discussion of a religious conception of the world in publicly funded formal education. Um, So, with those in mind, the panel of illustrious, uh, well, a professorial menage a trois, a professorial trio, who are going to do this, who are going to look at um, design arguments um, in the 21st century AD, Anno Domini, or 2nd century AD, um, after Darwin, will be um, John Cottingham, who's the Professor Emeritus um, of Philosophy from the University of Reading, among other positions. Um, Sarah Coakley, who's uh, Professor of Divinity at Cambridge University, and your very own John Worrell, who's Professor of Philosophy, of the Philosophy of Science here at the LSE. Um, I'm going to ask each of them to, each of the professors in the order I've introduced them, to speak for up to 15 minutes, and then there'll be a chance for them to respond to each other. Um, And then, um, for the last... Ideally 30, but it may be 25 or 20, depending on how the d- discussion goes on stage. I want to throw it to the floor. Um, I've been asked to draw your attention to the fact that tweeting is permitted, encouraged. Um, we've got um, at LSE Nature, if you want to start doing that now. And um, so without further ado, let's start things off um, with Professor John Cottingham. John. Thanks very much. It's very nice to uh, be here. Um, can everyone hear me all right? So the idea that the world, or aspects of it, manifests intelligent agency is actually a very ancient one. Indeed, it may be one of our most natural human impulses to attribute phenomena to some kind of purposive agent. In several ancient mythologies, thunderbolts are hurled down on us by the thunder god. But the notion of a cosmic intelligence, or designer even, at work in the cosmos as a whole, in the world as a whole, has attracted many philosophers in the Western tradition from classical times onwards. In Plato's eyes, the cosmos displays beauty and harmony, and in an early hint of what we now call the argument from design in his dialogue, The Timaeus, he posited a demiurge, or craftsman, whose goal was that there should be, as far as possible, nothing imperfect in the world. 
a goal actually he couldn't quite achieve because of the residual recalcitrance of matter. And the other great founder of Western philosophy, Aristotle, saw an inherent teleology or purposiveness in nature. Nature does nothing in vain, he frequently remarked. And Aristotle was followed by the great Christian philosopher Aquinas in the 12th century in the fifth of Thomas Aquinas's proofs or ways or proofs of God's existence. He says not just animals, but even inanimate beings display goal-directed behavior. Um, as he puts it, they commonly act to achieve what is best. We might think of, I don't know, the kidney filtering blood or a tree reaching towards the light. But Aquinas goes on, things which don't have knowledge do not tend towards a goal unless they're directed by something with knowledge and intelligence as an arrow is guided by an archer. Hence there is some intelligent being by whom all natural things are directed to their goal or end and this we call God. So on that view, the world isn't just a random collection of disordered occurrences. It manifests harmony, purposiveness, rhythm, directedness, or teleology. And coming down to the early modern period, the German philosopher Leibniz developed an elaborate reworking of this idea of benign teleology. There's nothing, he said, quote, there's nothing waste, nothing sterile, no chaos, no confusions in the universe, save in appearance. And for Leibniz, mechanical causes, ordinary physical mechanical causes, were not enough to explain the world as we find it. There was an overall harmony in things, what he called pre-established harmony, ultimately due to the creative power of God, he thought. Now, harmony, in that sense of an intricate functioning and cooperation of all the parts of things is stressed in the most famous version of the argument from design, that of Archdeacon Paley in his Natural Theology, 1802. I'm sure everyone knows about this argument. Anyone finding a watch would obviously take it to be the work of an intelligent watchmaker. But Paley argues, quote, Every manifestation of design in the watch exists in the works of nature. The complexity, subtlety, and curiosity of the various bits, for example, the organs of the body, shows they are no less evidently accommodated to their end than the most perfect productions of human ingenuity. The Scottish atheist philosopher David Hume Uh, wrote his Dialogues on Natural Religion a few decades before Paley, but versions of the design argument were rife in the 18th century. And Hume mounts a devastating attack on design arguments. In the first place, he says the analogy is very weak. The universe really isn't much like a watch or a house, is his example. Second, this apparent goal-directedness of phenomena is not proof of design or a designer. Matter, says Hume, might, for all we know, contain the principle of order within itself. And then in a 
a sentence I love. He says, why fasten on, on, on design as the only cause of the order we find? And this is what he says. What peculiar privilege has this little agitation of the brain, which we call thought, that we should make it the model of the whole universe? And finally, Hume makes the point that any causal reasoning must depend on observing data and previous instances. But when we're dealing with a whole universe, a one-off, then causal reasoning just breaks down because the universe is unique, singular, individual, and without parallel, says Hume. Now, I think Hume's last point is quite important and affects discussions about fine-tuning um, you know, the idea that uh, the key parameters of the cosmos, like the value for the gravitational constant and so on, have to be within very tight limits if life is to emerge. Um, so doesn't this show an intelligence at work? Well, I think Hume would have replied that we just have no prior knowledge. Of, we don't have any data about universes and how they form. So we just don't have the information to speculate about what might cause the constants of the cosmos as they are. Now in this and recent discussions, arguments of this sort have got, I think, muddled up with a religion versus science debate, which is often acrimonious, but I think maybe largely confused. Um, because... The question of whether the universe is a blank mechanical succession of events or instead reflects the purposes of a divine creator may be a false dichotomy. René Descartes, for example, in the 17th century, a pioneer of modern mathematical science, he also took a mechanistic evolutionary view of the origin of the planets and even of terrestrial phenomena yet he still saw these processes as reflecting mathematical laws ordained by God. Similarly, Newton, the founder of modern physics, Isaac Newton, wrote uh, that the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets, comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. So it's quite possible to see the universe as governed by natural laws, yet still in some sense a divine creation. You might think that in the biological sphere, at least, in the aftermath of Darwin, it's much harder to maintain a religious or providentialist outlook. The Cambridge Platonist Henry Moore, in a book called An Antidote Against Atheism, said, argued that the fortuitous, the accidental, concourse of atoms could never explain perfectly formed species. But that strategy of anti-evolutionists seems obsolete in the light of Darwin's argument that the weeding out of unfit forms in the struggle for survival could mimic selective, deliberate selective breeding. So, you know, the familiar idea is that the competition over countless millennia produces ever more efficient forms of life, but no intelligence is needed to guide the process. It's indeed fortuitous or accidental. Just one point I want to make here. Notice, because the process is accidental, 
in the sense of not consciously guided, it doesn't follow that it must be random or chaotic. On the contrary, I think most Darwinists, and Darwin himself, maintain that once the relevant combination of circumstances arise, then given the natural properties of the various structures, um, the resulting evolutionary process can be expected to occur in a perfectly natural, law-like fashion. Right? Uh, Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, in his latest series, Wonders of Life, put it this way last week on television, uh, far from being a chance event, the emergence of life might have been an inevitable consequence of the laws of physics. Well, if you do take that view, that does seem to me to leave the door open for the believer, for the theist, who accepts the processes of evolution as part of a natural order, but maintains that order reflects divine purposes. So if that's right, then science doesn't have to be on a collision course with religion, despite what militant atheists such as Richard Dawkins would have us believe. Evolution, though itself a mechanical process, could be part of the natural order ordained by the creator. So on that reconciliationist view, which I'm inclined to myself, we look purely to science for explanations of the mechanisms and processes of how the universe arose from its original state and by which intelligence arose. The religious outlook doesn't offer a rival account to the scientific one, but instead interprets the entire natural world and all its intricate physical processes as a manifestation of divine creativity. So to come finally to the present, just very briefly to conclude, um, there's been a lot of discussion about two seeming problems for the neo-Darwinian paradigm. That's to say Darwin plus modern molecular biology. Um, it hasn't so far explained the original emergence of the first self-replicating molecules from non-living matter. And second, once life has emerged, some thinkers, like the American philosopher Tom Nagel, in a great book published last year called Mind and Cosmos, um, are skeptical about, this is quoting Nagel, the likelihood that in the available geological time, as a result of physical processes, a sequence of viable genetic mutations should have occurred sufficient to allow natural selection to produce the organisms that actually exist. Now, interestingly, Nagel himself is adamantly non-religious, but he thinks he, he would like to find a non-theistic solution to these problems, perhaps via some expanded but still ultimately naturalistic account, albeit one, Nagel says, that may have to include teleological elements. We're back to teleology. Well, there are no doubt unsolved problems for biological science, but most good scientists, I think, are quite prepared to admit gaps in our knowledge. Invoking God to fill the gaps in science, it seems to me, has never been a promising strategy. And in any case, it puts religion and science against each other. Obviously, they have often been locked, have locked horns in the past, and still today, religious fundamentalists see them as in conflict. But a more careful look 
at the Western philosophical and scientific tradition, which I've just very briefly sketched this evening, I think tells a different story. The cosmos revealed by science is an astonishingly beautiful, unified whole, seemingly able to generate over billions of years the intricately ordered processes of life and eventually the amazing human capacities for rationality, reflective thought, consciousness, and responsiveness to beauty and to goodness. The beautiful, intricate world revealed by science certainly doesn't prove God's existence, but it's a world which, in my view, the religious believer can still feel at home in. Thank you. I like the idea of um, reconciliationist philosophy. That was an object lesson in it. Um, Sarah. Thank you. Well, first, my sincere thanks to Simon Glendening and colleagues him and others for organising this event and for the honour of the invitation. And my brief was to give you a potted version of my recent Aberdeen Gifford lectures, which are entitled Sacrifice Regained, Evolution, Cooperation and God. And they are a uh, philosophical and theological meditation on um, five years that I spent sitting in the laboratory of a colleague at Harvard, uh, Martin Novak. Um, who works on the phenomenon of cooperation with mathematical tools. More of him and non. I'm going to be very brief and reduce a much more complex argument to a few bold strokes. Nonetheless, despite the disadvantage of this constraint, I hope it will conduce to a certain clarity and perhaps to a certain sharpening of debate. I'm less conciliatory than John. (laughs) Um, And you'll begin to see why. So John has already sketched something of the long and complex history of the Western fascination with design and teleology and nature, and of the seemingly devastating critiques of the arguments for God from these phenomena in the modern period, especially in the dialogues of David Hume. It does indeed lie at the heart of the ambition of my recent Gifford lectures, philosophically to rethink both the notion of teleology itself in relation to evolution and of the status of arguments therefrom to God, what has traditionally been called natural theology, and which John has already said he would rather not get involved in. But in this double rethinking, I somewhat radically change the name of the old game as practiced on both fronts in the Enlightenment and in later Darwinian-Victorian debates. To give you a flavor of my argument in 10 minutes or less, I'm going to proceed in just three moves. First, a couple of necessary disclaimers to head off misunderstandings or possible projections. Second, an account of the complex way in which I reintroduce the notion of teleology in discussion with contemporary evolutionary theory, but in carefully parsed ways indicating the possibility for philosophical discussion about teleology at a number of different levels, only in the last of which does the possibility of God come explicitly into discussion. So this is a rather a different way of doing the discussion from Paley. Um, I don't go straight from a watch to a watchmaker. I proceed in ascending steps. 
And some of you may want to go up only two steps and then stop. Third, I'm going to give you a brief indication in closing of how in repristinating natural theology in the way that I do here, I am changing its nature too, ducking or averting the pungent attacks one might expect against such a notion from both secular philosophy and science on the one hand and from theological followers of Karl Barth and, uh, and other such revelational theologians on the other. For both, ironically and with equal vehemence, abominate the project of arguments for God from any empirical base. <coughs> so first, a couple of important opening remarks to head off possible misunderstandings. It's important for me to stress first that the current politicized argument about science, religion, and public education gets off on completely the wrong foot, in my view, by assuming that religious adherents will be ones who will want to see creationist or ID renditions of divine action in creation inserted into science lessons as competitors with standard Darwinian accounts of evolution, for instance. I argue strenuously against such a model of thinking. Not only do I think creationist and ID renditions to be poor theology as well as poor science, but the mistake is often made here that a creator god will somehow be an entity within the stream of creation on this view rather than a timeless creator out of nothing undergirding and sustaining the whole creation. So there's a danger if you introduce notions of God into a science lesson that you'll be treating God as if God were one very big item in the universe. And that is theologically uh, misleading. It follows that any argument for any being like this, God, cannot, be, by definition, be solved in a science lesson and must be undertaken in a discussion at a different level about metaphysics. And herein lies the problem. We don't, at the moment, have A-levels in history of philosophy and science that could be studied alongside empirical sciences themselves and expose and discuss the contested philosophical issues which are often buried but at stake in empirical science. For instance, the naturalism and physicalism that is often taken to be part and parcel of empirical science, is actually, both of these are actually quite contentious metaphysical positions. And students, I think, need to know what range of other alternatives might be up for reflection and how to adjudicate rationally between the options. Ironically, if you want to study something about that, and you want to find an A-level where you can, you'll have to do the A-level in philosophy of religion and ethics, which has questions that do cover some of that history. A second preliminary clarification may head off a critique that could readily be proffered against my neo-teleological arguments by any philosopher in the tradition of David Hume. Now, the dialogues, which some of you may know, um, contain, interestingly, a passing argument for design which is based on the direct impact of uh, what is described by the exponent as the sensation and impression of order and beauty in the universe, that um, the sceptic in the dialogues, Philo, doesn't completely see off. It's a sort of direct, immediate impression and sensation. Indeed, right at the end of the dialogues, he actually acknowledges in a seemingly vault farce that this may continue to have force. So leaving that aside, I take the arguments that Hume otherwise presses in the dialogues against what would later become Paley's kind of watchmaker analogy 
to be pretty decisive. So it's not that kind of paleoite argument that I'm interested in. In fact, I call in my, in my Gifford lectures a new natural theology that is unimpaled. Instead, I'm interested in going back to reconsidering certain more ancient Aristotelian arguments for natural teleology, which I think recent developments in evolutionary biology really are suggestively related to. And I'm also interested in going back to some unfinished business in Kant's critiques of the arguments for existence of God, where he still talks, even in his third critique at the end of his life, about an as-if teleology and what he calls its propideutic force in helping to bring about moral decisions for God. Note that Aristotle's refusal to disjoin fact and value in his account of natural kinds and of natural law is what promises here, if it can be made to work in a contemporary setting of evolutionary theory. And it can help here to heal the problematic disjunction that ever remains in Kant between the as-if of the observer looking at design and the world as it actually is. So much by way of introduction. Now, very briefly, into my second major arena, which is to boil down uh, some fairly complicated argument into a very short set of remarks. So this is under the cluster title, How is the notion of teleology reintroduced and reconceived in my Gifford Lectures? The short answer is that I seek to invite a reconsideration of a broadly Aristotelian notion of teleology and evolution at a number of distinct levels in conversation with empirical and mathematical evolutionary theory. And this is in particular conversation with the fascinating discoveries that have been formulated in the latter part of the 20th century and on into the 21st about the evolutionary phenomenon called cooperation, the phenomenon of entities within an evolutionary population taking a loss evolutionarily in terms of fitness, and yet that loss somehow resulting in the greater flourishing of the population as a whole. So prima facie, the phenomenon of cooperation should, as it apparently seems, be um, selected against and yet there are various conditions under which it's selected for what we might more colloquially call sacrificial behaviours seem to pay off in certain particular conditions for evolutionary populations this has been um, explored with particular insight by the mathematical evolutionary theorists at Harvard, Martin Novak, my collaborator And he more recently has published an extremely controversial article with E.O. Wilson, the Ant-Man, who is never afraid to change his mind and who has come to the conclusion in later life that the theory of inclusive fitness, a mathematical theory devised by Bill Hamilton to explain such cooperative behaviours in terms simply of a form of uh, genetic explanation. So I... I am only interested on this view of furthering the life of my genes. So one way or another, the assumption is, on the more reductive view, that all cooperation is ultimately reducible to the furthering of genes in my gene pool, even if not me personally. This is now being questioned, and it's caused an enormous explosion 
in the um, uh, arena of um, evolutionary theory. Um, if you saw this last week's TLS, you may have seen a review of E.L. Wilson's most recent book by Jerry Coyne, in which he lambasts him for undermining this um, reductive genetic selfishness presumption in um, late 20th century evolutionary theory. Now, not everything hangs in my argument on whether E.O. Wilson and Novak are right about that particular questioning of the mathematics of um, cooperation. But what is important here is that I seek to uh, spell out discussion that should take place about teleology in evolutionary, in the whole evolutionary spectrum, at a number of discrete levels. And I invite secularists and um, non-secularists to the table of discussion here to see how, what is the best explanatory hypothesis at these different levels. And at the first level, it is simply a matter of asking, as empirical biologists ask all the time, actually, in practice, when I look at this evolutionary phenomenon, the phenomenon of cooperation, am I not almost required to ask what is this for? And already that is to ask a neo-Aristotelian question uh, that conjoins fact and value. What is the purpose of this evolutionary phenomenon of cooperation? How can it have come into being and survived? And what is it furthering? And that immediately is to ask another kind of Aristotelian question, which is, what is it to flourish not simply why is this here at all, but what are the conditions of cooperation or otherwise in which this species or this population within a species flourishes? And that is already a teleological question. But it is a teleological question which, if you're thinking philosophically and clearly, demands that you begin to bring in issues of interpretation, often called hermeneutics, and underlying metaphysical issues about how you think about the relationship between fact and value. Then at the second level, I'm going to go very fast here just to spell this out. At the second level, another discussion takes place when the evidence is propounded by John Maynard Smith in his, the end of his career with his collaborator Eos Satmati in a wonderful book called The Major Transitions in Evolution, which some of you may know. What John Maynard Smith discovered, partly with the use of this new mathematicalization of evolution, was that as higher forms of life emerged in the evolutionary history, what always preceded such an emergence was a rich matrix moment of um, stable cooperative behaviors. So there's something about cooperation in its stable form that allows a matrix of creativity. Now, if you look at the patterning across the whole spectrum and you see these moments of transition, this is another level at which you can discuss metaphysically what does this mean. Is there something that patterns the whole of the creation in its evolutionary form about which Darwin perhaps had some intuitions? He had very interesting intuitions about, about cooperation and about the importance of groups which are not merely genetically connected. The third and fourth levels of discussion about teleology are when we hit the human realm. They can build on the first two, 
And the third one is when we find behaviours in the higher mammals already anticipating, as Alistair MacIntyre has so interestingly exposed in relation to dolphins, for instance, intentional forms of cooperation which seem to be more seriously altruistic. That is, they seem to have an intentionality in them. They're belief-laden. And in the human realm, of course, they demand the existence of mind. Um, Mind supervening in some sense, if one is not a reductive physicalist, over mere flesh or matter. And so here we have to find a teleological discussion which is also making decisions about what in philosophy is called meta-ethics. What theory of ethical decisions best describes what we find in these higher mammals and which is shared with humans? In my argument in the Giffords, I say that actually it's a form of Aristotelianism here which best explains these behaviors, best explains these manifestations of natural um, teleological uh, responsiveness which leads to virtuous behavior over time. And the fourth level of discussion, and I've kept my powder dry till now in these lectures, is to say, how do we explain, after these various previous levels, forms of altruism which are truly, we might say, excessive? How do we explain them in evolutionary terms, in cultural terms? Think think of those Cistercian monks who stayed on in the mountains in in Algeria, knowing they were going to be murdered in all likelihood. What on earth were they up to? What was motivating them? What was it about their insights and their response to what they thought of as final reality in God that created the motivation for them to stay, to sacrifice themselves intentionally for the sake of some greater good? And so... If this is again a matter of discussion within a meta-ethical and metaphysical framework, at least the option is presented to us of an explanation that only is fully and richly and vibrantly sensible in the context of religious belief. I think I have about two minutes, is that right? Less. Less, okay. (laughs) So, thirdly, what sort of natural theology is this? It's different from any previous natural theology. And I'll just list the six reasons I give why. First, it rejects the idea that science presents us with a flat plane in which we don't have to make any contentious hermeneutical, metaphysical, or meta-ethical decisions. Science is always begging those questions. Secondly, it refuses a disjunction between fact and value, which science often insists on, and even John was hinting at. Thirdly, It has a strong insistence on the notion of a God who creates out of nothing and therefore is ontologically at a completely different level from the evolutionary spectrum itself. It's not competing with that spectrum. Fourthly, it um, is highly suspicious of a merely deist or boldly theist account of God because the very phenomenon of altruism calls forth richer perceptions of God, a God who sacrifices for the sake of something better. Fifthly, it opts for a notion of God that ultimately demands an affective, willed response from the one who considers these evidences and not merely a dispassionate, noetic response. And sixthly, it suggests 
But that response is unlikely to come about unless the person who observes is also to some extent trained in looking in the right way, according to a tradition of a kind of uh, responsive, integrated spiritual sensation. Thank you for allowing me to overstep my Um, without further ado, because I'm conscious of time, John Wall. Thank you. Uh, I find I can't speak any more in public without a PowerPoint. It's, I'm addicted. So. Uh, okay. Um, so I'm going to spend, start off my 15 minutes of fame doing something rather odd, namely praising a couple of US judges and thanking them from the point of view of scientific rationality. Um, the context, of course, here is the uh, debate in the US of, uh, about uh, equal time attempts by, first of all, by creationists and then by intelligent design people um, to, to get uh, judges to rule that there should be equal time for Darwinism and their theories in the US uh, high, high school curriculum. I quite like this. Uh, cartoon uh, suggesting that maybe the next people who want uh, equal time are the uh, uh, people, uh, astrologers, and uh, then maybe after that, alchemy rather than chemistry and so on. Uh, luckily, we had two very good judges, amazingly, really, American judges being sensible, especially since at least one of them was a Republican. Um, but anyway, uh, here's what the, the James, Judge James Overton said in the initial creationist attempt for, to get equal time. The essential characteristics of science are it's guided by natural law, it has to be explanatory by reference to natural law, it's testable against the empirical world, its conclusions are tentative, uh, and it's falsifiable. Ruse, in one of his more sensible moments, having been influential in this respect, creation science fails to meet these essential characteristics. Then, uh, Judge John E. Jones in Kitzmiller versus Do the Dover Area School District, 2005. This was the ID attempt to get equal time. To be sure, Darwin's theory of evolution is imperfect. However, the fact that a scientific theory can't yet render an explanation on every point should not be used as a pretext to thrust an untestable alternative hypothesis grounded in religion into the science classroom or to misrepresent well-established scientific propositions. The citizens of the Dover area were poorly served by the members of the board who voted for the intelligent design policy in an era when we're trying to cure cancer, when we're trying to prevent pandemics, when we're trying to keep science and math education on the cutting edge in the US to introduce and teach bad science to ninth grade students makes very little sense to me. You know, garbage in, garbage out. And it doesn't benefit any of us who benefit daily from scientific discoveries. Here, here. Okay, now, of course, I'm not naive enough to think that everything in science involves testing theories. We do all sorts of things in science. We explore looking for testable theories. But if, if we're not looking for testable theories, we aren't doing science. We model a lot of the time, it's increasingly now, uh, which basically means that you explore consistency issues. But is, it consist is altruism, for example, consistent with the Darwinian approach, uh, even? Let alone, it, can you produce testable theories of... Of, uh, of altruism and so on and that, that's a sort of modelling issue uh, it's not directly aimed at producing a, it, it's a theory that itself is testable but again it's only applied maths or logic unless it's based on fundamentally a testable theory sometimes you measure theoretical quantities again you've got to have a theory that tells you that the quantity is there to be measured and roughly tell you how to measure it and that, th that theory better be testable and survive tests 
Okay, well, it's pretty obvious that creationism was untestable. It seems clear that the idea of a creator creating the world originally somewhere around 4004 BC, uh, since that creator would operate by definition under no constraints, can't possibly be testable. Indeed, it isn't even easy to see uh, how it can be made consistent with the data, let alone predictive of the data. Uh, there's something that I very much like in scientific method uh, lectures to talk about, the Goss Dodge, uh, as I call it. This is Philip Goss, who wrote a book called Ophelos, which is Greek for navel, uh, aimed at the very deep issue of why Adam was created with a navel, given the way that he was created according to Genesis. Uh, and after 200 pages of agonizing, he comes to the conclusion that, well, why shouldn't God have created Adam with a navel if he wanted to? Uh, and he had this same idea with respect to the evidence of the very ancient earth, the existence of fossils and the, the fact that uh, a, a large amount of radioactive decay had occurred much more than you would expect if, uh, if uh, the universe had only been created in 4004. Well, the answer was that God created the universe already as if it looked very old in certain respects. It had these funny scratchings in the rocks and... Uh, it had already partially decayed radioactive atoms. Well, that's the definition in my book of, of, of uh, pseudoscience. It's defending a theory uh, against negative evidence by just incorporating it in a completely ad hoc way. And it seems like it's impossible to think how creation could do anything else. Creation so-called science could do anything else other than that. Well, of course, now it's not uh, creation science, it's uh, intelligent design. Uh, so let me say a few minutes about that and then uh, some more recent things. Okay, well, certainly there's certain things about the Darwinian background that one ought to be clear about. Uh, first of all, that there's good evidence for some things, but not for others, uh, and a very good reason why there's no evidence for the other things. So there's good evidence for a very old Earth, over 4 billion years. It seems very hard on the basis of any serious consideration of the evidence to deny that, and there's very good evidence for a single tree of life. There's also evidence for natural selection having produced quite small changes in particular, very fast-breeding organisms like fruit flies and more, more, uh, even more so bacteria. Uh, and some evidence, again, of quite small changes in the wild, for example, the Grant's work on Galop Galapagos finches. Uh, but there isn't uh, any direct evidence of large-scale change under natural selection, say, of an amphibian evolving from a fish. But also, not only is that true, it, it wouldn't be reasonable to expect it, given what we know or think we know, given the, 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 the evidence-based parts of uh, evolutionary theory, because it would take the lives of millions of investigators to produce such studies because of the enormous number of mutations and selections under natural selection of certain mutations uh, in order to produce the, the development from, an, uh, from the fish to the amphibian. And that's exactly, obviously, the area in which you can, the intelligent designers can come in and say, aha, you'll never explain that. You can explain small-scale changes evolutionarily by the natural theory of natural selection, but you're never going to ex uh, uh, explain the big changes. Well, the right reaction is, is to, obviously, from the scientific point of view, is to join the endeavour to fill in some more small steps in a scientific way. The wrong reaction is exactly the one I've described as the idea is having, namely claiming that you'll never explain that with natural selection, so we need something else. Intelligence with a capital I. It's, it's basically God, but with an existential quantifier instead of a... Those of you who've done any logic, rather than an individual constant. Okay, there are more local changes that ideas of claim can never be explained by natural selection or specific instances of it. And the, the talk always here is of irreducible complexity. 
Uh, and there are two forms, basically, of that argument. There's a sort of qualitative, qualitative part. Look at all the uh, qualitative version of the argument. Look at all the parts that would be useless separately that have to come together to make this particular organic system work. So a particular example we'll come on to in a second is uh, concerns uh, the flagellum of certain bacteria that uh, rotate to make the uh, to allow the bacterium to move move along. Uh, 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 natural selection can't explain that. It can't explain how there can be all these bits that individually would be useless and would be selected against by natural selection, except when they all come together. Well, there's a quantitative version of that which invokes probabilities. Here's what you need to make this system work. You need all these parts. And, they're in, and, and here's the probability you get part one by natural selection. Here's the probability you get part two by natural selection. So... The probability that you get all of them is, P, is probability of part 1 times probability of part 2 times probability of part n, and that's incredibly small. So B, Michael Behe, who was supposed to be the star uh, witness for, for the intelligent designists in the second case that I mentioned, but in fact managed to shoot himself and ID very firmly in the foot, uh, worked out that the probability of a particular blood-costing mechanism evolving na- via natural selection on this sort of argument was 10 to the minus 18, which is a pretty small number, and points out that if a lottery had that chance of being won, then if a million people played the lottery each year, it would take about a 1,000 billion years before anyone, not just a particular person, uh, won the lottery. Of course, he, he doesn't know that. It's an expectation value. It's not, it, could, it could be won next minute, but you would expect it to take that length of time before anybody won. This is Michael Behe. And this is a, a sort of... Uh, <laughs> rationally reconstructed version of the flagellum suggesting basically just the point is that it's got this uh, uh, flagellum thing that swings around like a rotary, rotary engine uh, to move the bacteria around it's got in order for it to work in that way it's got to have all these other things uh, that make it make the whole system look like a very finely tuned engine each of these individual parts don't work it's a, it's a rehearsal of the old uh, point about the human eye, how could the human eye have evolved, given that it's got all these parts that separately wouldn't do any good. Uh, and that's his, that's his argument. In fact, it turned out that um, there are related species in which the flagellum does other, uh, has other purposes. For, for example, the injection of poison into, uh, into things. Okay, so this whole argument is basically uh, uh, clearly uh, invalid if you think about it and it carries no real weight uh, the claims often been made in the history of science you'll never explain something and then lo and behold it's been explained uh, of course we're talking about things that are very very difficult to explain that are very long scale, large scale uh, but you can't ever say that we won't ever explain them that's clearly wrong and it's full of shabby probabilistic reasoning that I could explain if we had much longer making all sorts of assumptions that a Darwinian would never make, for example, that a particular part of some system would be at best useless and more likely fitness detracting were it not for the existence of the other parts. That's not true in the case of B's flagellum. Uh, And that each part's independent and therefore the probabilities multiply. Again, the probabilities only multiply if you think that each individual factor is, uh, is independent of the others and no Darwinian would think that that was true. But in any event, all that stuff which has really drawn most of the attention is entirely irrelevant to its scientific status because you can't establish uh, a science on the basis of a negative. We need to have some uh, positive uh, account from the intelligent design people if their position is going to be uh, properly scientific. 
we all let's agree, which we all do agree, that there's no full testable Darwinian explanation of how the bacterium got its flagellum. There are certain interesting suggestions that, that can be empirically supported. Uh, but so I wrote this little, uh, very short drama, um, in which involves me and uh, Professor Behe. So tell me, Professor Behe, how did the bacterium get its flagellum? Uh, well, it got it through the intervention of intelligence. Uh, I hate to be a pain, but it would be nice to know how. The rest, as they say, is silent. There's no account in, in any uh, intelligent design person of how intelligence is supposed to intervene in order to produce whatever it is that we're, uh, that we're, that we're talking about. In fact, silence is better than what the alternative, I think, or may arguably be better than the alternative, uh, because Behe believes in dissent with modification, so as far as I can tell, the only two possibilities are that intelligence came in to shield the precursor organisms that had some of the elements that make up this finely tuned system but not the others and therefore the system couldn't work that shielded it from the rigors of natural selection or intelligence made all the necessary low probabilities that mutations happen at once and that's really back to, to Goss it's no, it, in some ways it's even worse than Goss threatening to make the Goss dodge look good because you're just invoking what you want in order to explain what you'd like to explain but notice that invoking intelligence is not only unscientific in itself it would have accepted bar the progress of science by making people satisfied with an empty explanation, quote-unquote, that could never be, unlike real explanations, you can always ask for an explanation of an explanation. Kepler explains why you see the planets where they are because they move in ellipses and all and the other stuff, but then we get Newton coming along explaining why it is that planets move in, in, in that way. There's no way that you could explain the, the intervention of intelligence because it's by definition not part of the natural order. Okay, well, I can feel impatience growing because nobody wants to defend intelligent design on the, on the panel anyway. Uh, let me, so, so let, let me, but I think it's important because this, you know, this is the, socially speaking, at least in, in the US and unfortunately not uniquely in the US, the most uh, important, uh, socially important uh, uh, claim that uh, there is a evidence for the creator. And in a way, I respect it because at least they're looking for evidence. It may be that they're forced to look for evidence because of the US context that they've got to pass it off as a science. So I'm not sure that Sarah Coakley's right that they are naturally uh, god of the gapses because they would actually prefer, I think, except for the, con the American context, to say what I think Sarah does say, as I'll explain in a minute, that there's other... Uh, who cares whether it's science or not? Well, we can do something else. There's other ways of explaining. Uh, it doesn't need to be scientific explanation. Uh, and it's equally good... Religion is equally good. That's what I think they would like to say. But, of course, they can't say it in the U.S. context because of the separation, the very, very wonderful separation of state and religion, in my view, in the U.S. Okay, so let me say a little bit about conciliations that John mentioned. First of all, I don't think anybody seriously could think that religion and science are incompatible. What, what are incompatible, in my view, are religion and the scientific method. What do I mean by the scientific method? I mean, what, what Hume said when he said the rational man, and presumably he would include the rational woman, uh, tempers their belief to the evidence. That is, they don't, it's not just that you believe the things that for which there's positive evidence, you don't believe things for which uh, there, uh, there is no evidence, or at least if you do, you're a little bit shamefaced about it and you're relativist about it. You say other people can believe different things in that area. But, so what you believe about the charge on the electron, that won't matter where you were born. 
Suez, Shanghai, Sydney, all the same. But what you believe about religion, if you believe anything, will be very different because once the shackles of, of evidence, requirement for evidence have been taken off, you can believe what you like. Okay, so let me just mention briefly then uh, Sarah uh, Coakley's... Uh, what I take to be in the end uh, of her very interesting uh, Gifford lectures, the argument, the new argument, not suppose you really think it's new, but uh, an argument that's not so far been considered by me at any rate, uh, uh, for the existence of God, for the existence of a designer. So here's what she says. How do we account for supernormative acts, acts which go, be go, well, go beyond anything that you can talk about as altruism in biology? She, she, she mentioned some of these indeed. Uh, may result in some instances in death or profound suffering as a result of their supernormativity. We need, as Proust put it, a cause capable of generating new irreducible facts that do not simply derive from old ones. God would be such a cause. But no, Proust goes on, that this argument differs profoundly from the God of the Gaps argument, like those of Paley or the contemporary ID people, that's a square bracket, in which positing a designer offers an explanation of something science currently can't explain, because the present argument offers an explanation of a fact that for principal reasons science as such cannot ever explain. The central epistemological issue here is that we somehow cannot appropriately say that their altruism is abnormal, I don't quite know what appropriate means there, rather it's supernormal in a sense only to be derived, at least in the Christian context, from imitating what Luther called the proper man and his example. Well, as far as I can tell... As I've said already, the ideas are not at heart God of the gaps, so let me not repeat that. Uh, but as far as I can tell, the argument just really amounts to this. First of all, there's a premise that there are supernormative actions, which I would have take a lot of time being persuaded for, and I'm confident I'd never be persuaded that uh, Mother Teresa, whom uh, Sarah Coakley mentions, was one of those doing supernormative actions. I think she was an extremely abnormal uh, woman in many respects. I mean, we have evidence that she misappropriated funds that were meant to uh, support uh, caring for people, that she allowed people to suffer um, so that they'd feel nearer to God, nearer to Jesus, uh, when they, she discouraged her assistance from learning medicine because it was good that people suffered. Anyway, that maybe that, that's not a good example. There are other examples, but the, the, let's assume there are supernormative actions, actions that we can't, are so altruistic that we can't possibly explain them normally. The only way to explain them is by invoking God. And then I want to say, well, really, really the only way, I don't know, there's normal psychological ways maybe of explaining strange actions. More importantly, it seems to me the question should be raised, what notion of explanation we're employing here? Anyway, and then we get God exists. So what do I mean about what notion of explanation? Of course you can say that there are religious explanations, no doubt there are Scientological explanations, there are Nazi explanations, there are all sorts of language games that, as Wittgenstein would have said, which have their own paradigms, as Kuhn would say, which have their own rules for operating. But once you're outside of science, well, it just seems to me clear that science works. It isn't just a paradigm among, among many. Uh, television sets work, uh, X-ray machines work, be objectively work. There's no, there's, there is a complete division between fact and value, whatever Sarah may think. Um, it, but outside of science, it's all context relative. You believe what you, what you're taught to believe within that context. There's a suggestion uh, that, that uh, Sarah, Sarah believes that, 
or accepts that herself, and she says, at least in the Christian context, that's what you're going to believe, that this, these supernormal acts are... Existence of the evidence for the existence of God. So maybe you may, being at home in a certain context, accept something as explanatory, but there's no, it's not explanatory in the scientific sense. You're playing fast and loose with the notion of an explanation. An explanation in science requires independent testability. Explanation elsewhere is just putting your mind to rest. Scientific explanation nothing to do with putting your mind to rest. On the contrary, a scientific explanation should put your mind at less rest than it was before because you found a deeper theory that re- that's, got, that's even more in, uh, incredible than the, theory that, than the thing that you've explained. So there's no rational objective weight to, to, uh, to that sort of explanation. Someone in a different context, perhaps the Scientology one, would adopt a different explanation. So I think that Sarah's argument is in fact just preaching to the, to the choir, although as an ex-choir boy who didn't believe in God, maybe the choir needs to be preached to sometimes uh, if, you want, if you want to make sure that they, that they believe suitably. But if you want a real explanation, then it's a scientific explanation and there's no scientific evidence for it or explanation that involves uh, God. Thank you very much. That was almost a sermon, but obviously in, 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 um, in a secular sense. Um, Sarah, I think you should reply, because sure. each of you were, were, were great, but we've gone over time a little. It doesn't matter. Sarah, reply directly, I think, to, to those immediate... Yes, um, well, and maybe John would like to come in as well. I mean, I think... Notice how this sermon went. Um, so uh, the sermon goes this way. Um, in science, we have ways of testing which are um, clearly defined... Um, um, open to all. Uh, there's a, a matter of test, independent testability. Um, there is nothing there that um, is affected by passing cultural trends or um, um, metaphysical, smuggled metaphysical commitments which um, might be uh, leading you in one direction of investigation or another. That's nonsense. Um, uh, in contrast, uh, there is no rationality in everything outside science. Um, it's just a matter of um, completely um, arbitrary language games which uh, we happen to be subject to um, because of where we live or our cultural uh, education or our taste. Um, John, you want to... <laughs> well, I, as I understand it, John conceded my main claim that science and religion are compatible, but focused on whether religion and scientific method are compatible and talked about the scientific method as one which um, is shame-faced about going beyond the evidence. I think I'd, I, uh, I'd want to reply to that by saying it all depends what you mean by evidence. Um, there are cl- it seems to me absolutely clear that there are vast areas of human life where we have to act on evidence that is not what Paul Moser calls spectator evidence, just data there waiting on the table to be scientifically analysed and classified. A lot of evidence in life is evidence which you only perceive if you're in a suitable frame of mind and commitment. For example, evidence about whether a relationship is flourishing is something you can't gather if you remain outside in a detached attitude of scientific scepticism. If, if people remained in that attitude, they'd never commit to anyone or anything. 
So this is, if you like, a Pascalian epistemology after Blaise Pascal in the 17th century. That there are many types of evidence which you can only access by committing yourself, and then further down the line, the evidence may or may not materialise. So I think it's a very restricted conception of evidence that he's privileging in his notion of um, maybe valid for scientific method, but not valid for all knowledge. Uh, well, I only have 15 minutes, but I... I, I 23. Uh, but did I have to, oh, really? Oh, gosh, I, I'm very sorry. You should, have, you should have shouted at me. I must enjoy myself talking dead horses. Um, metaphysics, of course, well, I, I, met, I take... The, I'm not a positivist in the sense that I think everything reduces to, to empirical statements. Of course, nobody believes that. Um, but I do think that, you know, that there isn't a role for anything beyond... Uh, what the beyond theories which are, have, if you like, metaphysical elements. Um, I don't know about the. Um, it seems to me, of course, Kuhn talk, talk to, told us that we commit ourselves in science as well. But it's it's in a very uh, defeasible way. You you know you 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 commit yourself temporarily, looking for the evidence, expecting that eventually the evidence will uh, will indicate that this theory is the better is the better theory. I, I, you know, people say you, you know you don't look for evidence when you're looking for a partner, but I did. Uh, I realised it was conjectural and probabilistic, and that the, you know, the, the, some, the the idea that somehow you know you know that this is for, this person is for you is refuted day after day, just round the corner in the divorce courts. I mean, it, it's, uh, I think it is all in the end. I I, I know it's a, not a popular view, but I really think in the end it is all scientific method. It's all conjectures and refutations. So uh, and, and, Except and, for religion. So your view of religion, I, I want to probe what your presumptions about religion are. It seems to me that you've set up religion as some kind of sphere in which um, dogmatic commitments are made which mm-hmm. have no relationship to evidential concerns. Correct. Well, we just disagree about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And I think we'd have... This is where you have to go back to your absolute presuppositions, dig down and say, um, what is first your view of religion? What is your view about how science operates in relation to philosophy of science and its theories of explanation, its theories of evidence, its theories of what counts as truth? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if we were to probe those, if we had time, we would find both that we had more in common, but also that we had more interesting points of disagreement. But is this, let's put it more broadly cultural, mm-hmm. is it likely in Western culture, British culture specifically, mm-hmm. that religion and science, even though you've all, you've all agreed that they, they're not naturally um, always at loggerheads, mm-hmm. but is it, are we culturally in a position where that will ever happen? Or is the way that the arguments are always being framed because sci- scientists feel sometimes not threatened by, but they, they become overwhelmed by the tedium of the sophistry sometimes of arguments that are thrown up for intelligent design. And likewise, the, uh, people of faith or belief sometimes feel that Darwinism is used as a club which to beat them. Are we culturally in a situation where that is so divisive it's irreconcilable? Well, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I think I could answer that by putting a question to Sarah, and namely that I... I entirely agree with her about the rich levels of teleology she referred to, in particular in the human domain and the human realm. But what's the conclusion from that? Is it that science needs to modify itself to take account of them, or is it that 
science has its limits and this will always remain outside these richer no, levels. That's your strategy, uh, yeah. and I partly agree with it, but I, I, don't, I don't want to jump to a reconciliation at different levels too quickly because what that leaves out, and this is to answer your question, our cultural problem at the moment is that we don't have a well-established discourse about philosophy of science. So we, we've set side by side, the, just, just as John has just done, the scientific method versus religion. And actually, as we've just discovered, if we really wanted a rich conversation, we'd have to probe, you know, what is your view about how facts are established? What is your view about the nature of reality and whether there are any unseen realities that you believe in? Etc., um, etc. Et These are metaphysical questions. And we're never going to agree while we just have standoffs without that middle ground. The reason why I'm not so happy with John's happy conciliation is that I think that secular science quite often has its own dogmas, which are really dogmas. Such Um, as? Well, such as the assumption in um, the form of Darwinianism that has been dominant in the latter decades of the 20th century, since the genome was discovered, that, and this is an assumption that Darwin himself did not make, he didn't know anything about genomes, that Uh, the whole um, uh, evolutionary spectrum is explicable in terms of merely genetic propulsion. Um, And even to use the word propulsion, uh, it goes further than um, the secular dogma presumes because it suggests some kind of organic movement itself. Um, And that, I think, is a dogma. So you see, for instance, Richard Dawkins having to add to um, the selfish gene in the second edition a whole chapter called um, uh, How Nice Guys Finish First, whatever it's called, to explain um, uh, desperately, you might think, um, how the phenomena of cooperation which at that time were being um, um, uh, explicated in a new and very interesting way that seemed to challenge the dogma of genetic reductionism, how it could actually be wrenched back into another version of this same genetic reductionism. Mm -hmm. And that's the sign of a theory cracking, um, which you have written very insightfully Mm -hmm. upon, right? And it's a sign at which, you know, a particular dogma that has dominated needs to be looked at philosophically to probe its underlying presumptions. Mm -hmm. Once we can have these metaphysical discussions, we can bring theological metaphysics to the table and see how it fares alongside other methods. And you'd be happy with that, John, as long as it wasn't done in, on the science curriculum? Uh, happy with what? The idea of <laughs> metaphysics being brought to the table. And uh, well, I think it would be a very good idea to, to, to teach scientific method. Mm. In, in the, uh, and, and it would, in that sense, bringing intelligent design into the classroom would be a very good idea, so long as it's brought in as an example of bad science, because that's a very good way to teach, you know, to have contrast between the two. But I do want to say, I mean, I don't believe anybody's a genetic determinist. I don't think even Richard Dawkins ever was. Uh, I'm, and I'm not sure that... Of course it's a sign of degeneration, as I mentioned with the, with the, with the Goss thing, if you hold on to a theory without independent testability. But holding on to a theory as such, in pursuit of it, so long as you occasionally get some independent testability, that seems like a a very, good, a very good thing and modifying the theory in the light of data you hadn't thought mm-hmm. about is a good thing we have to look carefully about whether there were predictive successes I think there were some predictive successes it's an ongoing process mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. are changing um, 
the way that corporations is being thought about is very different, as mm -hmm. you interestingly And exciting and, and it's stretching the, exactly. the theory. Yeah. Okay, so exactly. that we don't disagree about. Absolutely. Perhaps but what we do disagree about is whether, when these transformations are happening, whether the most exciting thing is actually to probe to the philosophical commitments that may be unconsciously animating the scientific theory. Because you've represented scientific theory in your little spiel here as uh -huh. if it was uncomplicatedly empirical without any other metaphysical or metaethical commitments. And I don't believe that. As if it's just <laughs> flat I, to I, use your... Yes. A flat well, I do believe in a flat world. Yeah, a flat, mm. flat, yeah. It's flat. It's deductive logic is a very important part of that. I think it's very hard to argue that that's not, uh, that that's not universal. Uh, and the, the idea that, uh, uh, that you test theories and that the theory is better supported, that's more severe the test, that's not just in Popper, that's in Bayes, that's in everybody. Every theory of confirmation has that consequence, and it's all you really need. And, and, and I think that's universal throughout oh. science. I think, it's all, I think it's all one seminar in the sky when it comes to the whole development of science. I, I love the idea that we seem to have come full circle, Vixie is the pun, and you now admit as a philosopher of science that the world is flat. <laughs> Did I misattend? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we must throw it to the floor because yeah, it's only yeah. 20 minutes and yeah. I'm sure there's a bit of opportunity. Yeah, okay. yeah the guy with the blue shirt, yeah. Yes, um, I've got a question for Professor Mike. Sorry. Apologies. Hello, I've got a uh, question for Professor John Worrell. Um, you mentioned the American judge who said that to be a scientific theory, something had to be falsifiable. Yeah. So in order for me to accept evolution as a scientific theory, I want you to tell me what scientific discoveries could be made that, in your view, would falsify it. So what could science discover in the next 50 years that, in your view, would persuade you that well, evolution was false? Uh, well, again, I only had 23 minutes, maybe 23 and a half. Uh, of course, it's a longer story, and it's more the notion of testability that you need is a lot more sophisticated than Michael Rusin passed to that particular uh, judge, to Judge Overton, uh, I mean by falsifiable that, that it's got to come into contact with the evidence, and that means independent testability. Of course, it's true that the fundamental principles of, that, you know, the idea that natural selection has occurred, that mutations have occurred and so on, that in itself is not, I agree, directly falsifiable, any more than Newton's second law that F equals MA is falsifiable. Uh, I think of Darwin, in a very thin sense, actually, as just giving you a framework for uh, the production of testable theories and it, 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 what gets testable are specific specifications of uh, what is fitness enhancing in particular circumstances so Ketterwell's theory about the spread of to take a very hackneyed example the spread of the uh, melanoid form of Bistum bistularia moth after the industrial revolution uh, that's testable via the uh, particular Darwin assumption that the fitness enhancing characteristic is a, it, relative invisibility to predators if you're, if you're melanoid rather than speckled. You seem to be telling me that the framework as a whole is not falsifiable. In that case, it's not scientific theory. Yes, it is, because it's falsifiable has to be understood in that sense. It's falsifi falsifiable, meaning that it comes into contact, that specific versions of the theory are falsifiable. Uh, that, that is the whole thing. Together, the, if you like the metaphysical part, if you want to call it that, I don't mind. Together with the more specific assumptions, this is just Duhem, Kuhn, Lakatos, whatever you like, that gets falsified, and you don't react by simply absorbing the, the, the falsifications a la Gauss. 
you, if you do get falsified that whole framework, you move to a new frame, a, a new specific version which has independent testability, and that's what gives you the support for the fundamental theory. But I, I completely agree. It's not, it's not falsifiable in Popper's... I mean, Popper said that, stupidly that, that uh, Darwinian theory is a tautology. Uh, it's not. It's not false. It's not. It's not falsifiable like all ravens of black is falsified. I agree. It's more sophisticated than that. But you know, the judge did well. Fair enough. Yeah. Of course, it's a genuine because it's the same. In that case, you'd say no theory is a genuine scientific theory because the same is true of Newton. You can't. You can't falsify f equals m a or or the principle of universal gravitation without making auxiliary assumptions, making a specific theory that then, as a whole, gets. I mean, I think that the concession about frameworks is very significant mm-hmm. because it shows we're departing from the flat conception of science. They're frameworks of understanding whose relation to what is observed is far more complicated. And earlier John said science uh, had this universal reach whereas all other forms of commitment were within frameworks. Now we've had a rather different... Um, Cooney and modification of that disjunction, it seems to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jeff at the back and then let's go to the front. Yeah, the guy with the green. Can you wait for the mic? Sorry, yeah. yeah. It, seems, it seems that um, a lot of what we're talking about could be uh, encompassed by people who asked Joe in Lai whether the French Revolution had been successful or not, and he said it was too early to tell. <laughs> and, but it's in this case whether the scientific revolution has deposed of a, a God idea. Mm. That might be too early to tell, but there's a lot of wonderful things en route. And the problem would be that if you had the idea of God, would you come up with all of those discoveries? It seems to me that in science, as it's practiced, philosophy hardly matters. Um, some of the senior citizens of science get philosophical in their old age when they retreat from the bench. That's quite a common thing to happen. But it seems very difficult for me to understand what a philosopher who believed in God or some of the things that Sarah has talked about today, what advice they would give to a young scientist to improve their function as a scientist. But it's, it's not a case of improving science, I think. It's just a case of acknowledging. I mean, science is fine. I totally agree with you about the wonderful discoveries and the wonderful, perhaps the highest of human achievements. But what we're now doing is not science. So there are whole domains of human activity and, and understanding and rationality which are not encompassed by reductionistic science. And it's very, it just seems to me very nothing to do with God at this point. Just very important to be aware of that. If you, if you reduce all, all truth to a scientific template, you're denying the very validity of what you've, you've just, the point you've just raised the whole discussion we're having. Could I add an extra sentence? I think you're raising such an important question, but I think my answer would be a little bit more paradoxical than John's, although I agree with what he said. I sat for five years in, um, as a philosopher of religion, in a top-rate evolutionary biology lab in um, Harvard, and it was one of the most fascinating things I ever did, because you're absolutely right. None of those top-rate biologists ever talked about philosophy of science. They didn't know anything about it. What they did do was that they constantly told 
hermeneutical narratives, often ones with evocations of theological meaning. They talked about sacrifice, they talked about forgiveness. Um, And that set of stories was animating the new cutting-edge science that they were doing. Now, isn't that interesting? They needed some other level of discourse other than the strictly flat scientific in order to, as it were, feed new ideas as they were pushing at the edges um, of uh, their particular sphere. So I think we've got a very complicated and paradoxical situation at the moment. Most operating scientists of the most world-class level don't read philosophy of science. But that doesn't mean that they don't make philosophical presumptions. And it doesn't mean that they don't also operate with stories and narratives that are energizing their science. I don't want to be flipped, but I don't... The question remains, what would you advise them to do to improve their performance? Well, scientists. Mm-hmm. To, I would actually advise them to read philosophy of science. I think that's where we might disagree. <laughs> Good. So they should get on with... My view would be they get on with their science. <laughs> But, but, but don't go on to tell the rest of us that there are no truths except what they produce. <laughs> like Atosh used to say, you don't need to teach the fish how, the laws of hydrodynamics. I think that's probably my view about this. That scientists just do it right if they're doing good science okay, without needing philosophical science. Just come down here. Gentleman here and then gentleman there. Here, just hit. Front, right. No, no, this guy at the front here. <laughs> Sorry. John's argued elsewhere for the primacy of faith in the religious life. And I, Sarah, I wondered if your approach to the new uh, natural theology actually undermined that primacy of faith and the, the richness of the, um, of the believer's relationship with God. Uh, not at all. I was rushing at the end, but I think we're, we have an interesting hermeneutical circle here because I wouldn't for a minute think that anyone previously uninterested in God would be... Sp- swayed into believing in God on the basis of what I just said this evening. What I think more commonly happens is that someone is entertaining the notion of God. They are drawn towards the idea of God, and yet they are rational beings who desperately want to see how everything that they, all the benefits that they see from science relates to this, and they're intrigued by the evidences that they find in science. And it's become deeply unfashionable to talk about natural theology in this way. Um, uh, theologians in the last generation have withdrawn into their hermetically sealed boxes to keep themselves safe from the ravages of secular science. This has actually allowed secular science to go on its way undisturbed by critical questioning. It's much richer, in my view, if there is this hermeneutical circle between the two discourses. Gentlemen here now. Just while the mic's going down. When, did you ever believe in God when you were a choir boy? Uh, not seriously, I think. I <laughs> pretended I did, so to keep my mum happy. I wasn't a very good choir boy, so you, 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 you would know if you heard me sing. Uh, I'd just like to raise uh, two brief points which perhaps question some of the premises for the argument we've been hearing today. The first is, when we talk about the universe in the light of what physicists are now telling us, we begin to see that we know next to nothing about it. Talking, thinking about infinite time and space, no beginning, no end, black holes, alternative universes. That's one point. The other point's about God. In postulating the creator deity, most theologians conceive of him in an anthropomorphic way, as a kind of celestial superman. But what with, what with if God, if he exists, 
is not like that. For instance, he is more interested not in creation, but perhaps in solitary meditation, rather like the Hindu Brahma. <laughs> Would you like to respond to that? <laughs> I'm not sure that I can. Um, well, in drawing attention to the mysteries of physics um, and the, the necessity in physics of postulating unseen entities, there I think it is perfectly obvious that physics um, in its higher reaches is constantly um, invading the arena of metaphysics. And that I think is very fascinating indeed. It tells us that there is a discussion here to be had um, between the two discourses um, in a way that perhaps a la John's account of uh, uh, scientific testing that might not seem to be necessary so as for the, the notion of God I mean this was I touched on this just at the end rushing but it does strike me that um, um, natural theology in the past has been denuded by um, a highly what's generally called deist notion or bald theist notion of God um, often actually at the same time anthropomorphically conceived although rather covertly so and it strikes me that the discussion is wide open in the light of this debate as to most appropriately conceive of God make over alright <laughs> Potentially. But it's, it's a very ancient and traditional view in, in religion that God is incomprehensible, mm -hmm. far, farther than anything we can reach. And uh, I, I think I agree very much with Sarah here, that if you think of God as, as someone who sort of tinkers, and indeed with John Worrell, mm -hmm. if you think of God as someone who tinkers around with genes to sort of organize them, then that's not an explanation at all, because we're still no nearer knowing how he does it. Mm -hmm. So that sort of God, I think, is useless, both, both, for, both for any sort of explanatory theory and also for religion. This is the one thing we're all agreed on, actually, mm -hmm. uh, that we don't mm -hmm. like the theology of ID. We don't like the science of mm -hmm. ID yeah. either. Mm -hmm. Okay, Jason. The question is that uh, I've always been hearing the story that science and religion being against each other or scientific method and religion. But I was wondering if we can look at the story from completely, entirely different perspective, saying they're completing itself according to our understanding of the time, looking at the story from Hegelian point of view, if you like. They are going through it following each other. But based on the time, space, and our understanding of the world, one of them seems strange to us. But it doesn't mean that they negate each other. Mm -hmm. Probably, in a few years' time, I don't know, some of the understanding of the science we're having today would make no sense to us, or vice versa. So I was wondering if you could change the way of looking at the story and looking at the story from completing each other. Because the thing is, if we try to explain the God, this is a paradoxical question. We try to explain something which, by definition, is beyond explanation. So the one we're looking for, then. Um, I think that reflects something of what you were wanting to say, John. Yes, I, I don't think complete, that religion completes science in the sense of giving better explanations. It seems to me that as long as one thinks of God as a the God hypothesis, as Richard Dawkins puts it, as a sort of explanatory hypothesis. You're setting the thing up as a rival for science, and, and that debate is, is fruitless. So 
I don't want them to complete each other in that sense. As a background, as a solid background for science, not necessarily completing, supporting science, helping science to understand and answer the more questions. Yes. Well, as far as I'm concerned, maybe this is like uh, science is doing absolutely fine as it is. Well, there's I, one question is raining in science. Very good. Yes. That's good. It's yes. terrible if there was. I think what you're, partly what you're reaching out to say, I utterly agree with that, and alluded to in my own speech, that whatever God is, God is not one more very big item in the universe, but is that which undergirds, creates, sustains in being everything that is, and in that sense envelops and um, uh, sustains the whole scientific endeavour. I think the only place where John and I disagree is whether we can just leave science going on its merry way or whether some of its own metaphysical commitments are ones that actually need to be challenged because they have become um, unspoken dogmas which are actually not in themselves suggested or, support, or supported in any right by the evidence. Mm. John, you make the point in a lecture that mm. one of the principal characteristics of Judeo-Christian religion <laughs> is that it... it often it, it, they're not predicated as explanatory, explanatory mm. hypotheses, exactly. that actually they're, 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 they're about giving meaning to existence and ways of living life. Mm. Has science, I mean, I don't mean this in a loaded way, but has science thrown down a gauntlet that has made religion now try and defend itself more in terms of explanation, or, or, mm. or, or has there always been that cultural balance between explanation and, uh, and meaning of how And understanding. Mm. Well, I, I think insofar as um, science purports to do things of the kind you were perhaps alluding to, it's, it's no longer science. It's become sort of... If a scientist makes the statement that there is no methodology that's valid apart from that used in science, then that statement goes it's beyond science. That is, is scientism, I think, not science. So I think we need to be careful what we're attacking or defending. In terms. Science, as it stands, seems to me absolutely fine. But any scientist who goes outside the domain of science and says, what I've just done yesterday in the lab exhausts all of reality, then he's not speaking, he or she, not speaking as a scientist anymore, but as some kind of... Science is also going the way which religion did years ago. It's a newly born child of the family society. It's very small. So it's going the same direction. We don't know what's going to happen to science in 100 years. OK, let's have one more contribution there. Gentlemen there. Paul Hudson, just before I pose my question, I think this notion of evolutionary theory is a category error. I think it's a post facto rationalisation of what's been discovered so far. I've asked people at the Royal Society meetings to give me an example of a, uh, go back to this uh, questioner here, give me a, an evolutionary prediction. They said, oh, well, send me an email, but I never get an answer. But I did pose it with Ian Stewart, the mathematician who's working with an evolutionary biologist, and he agreed with me that evolutionary theory is, is a misnomer. It's rather like scientific proof. My daughter used to come back. I used to go and have meetings with her science teachers and say, science proof is not to be equated with mathematical proof. You're miseducating my daughter. <laughs> I want to come back now to a point about there being the supposed compatibility between religion and um, science. Uh, myself, I don't think they're compatible. I would, if Lakatos were alive, he might have said that, um, this is the way I put it, that maybe religion is a collection of protected belt axioms, and then you might develop certain propositions from those. Now, I have a number of friends who are religious, 
And I say to them, when we're arguing on those lines, I said, what sort of evidence would make you think you are wrong? And this is the sort of thing that goes on, as I understand it. I'm not a scientist, but I'm very interested in what takes place. Um, this is, in fact, this is the key distinction between uh, science and religion, is that you're always uh, asking you questions. I like Plump, this is Plump Quarry, the physicist, not the politician of the early 20th century. He likened knowledge to a sphere and the surface being in contact with the unknown. As we uh, add to our stock of knowledge, the sphere is increasing, that represents, that's the metaphor for knowledge, but then so is the surface, and they're coming in contact with more and more unknown, and this gives rise, or prompts us, in fact, to ask more questions. Well, I'd like to speak as a comment on well, I, I think it's a very interesting point, but I think religious and moral knowledge does develop. That, that, that our, understand, our religious and moral understandings do imp- hopefully improve over time. So I don't think it, it's... I, I agree with you that it's wonderful that, that we move forward all the time and that science <coughs> encapsulates that. You know. I think good, good religious and moral understanding also moves forward. I'm not sure what this proves, but has anyone... Show of hands. Does anyone feel that the fundamental way that they perceived design in nature has been changed by this evening's discussion? (laughs) (laughs) As it's gone eight o'clock, on that note of consensus, we can all go home. And I thank the panel, John Warren, Sarah Kelsey, John Cotton, and thank you for coming.